Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatranjay Maul. Today I'm speaking with Professor Isabel Wakuha Alonso about her new book, Radio for the Millions, Hindi-Urdu Broadcasting Across Borders, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2023. Professor Wakuha Alonso is an assistant professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. She is a historian of sound media and modern South Asia. So welcome to the podcast today, Isabel. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to speak with you today. Um, So our first question is always biographical. So I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become a historian of South Asia with an interest in sound media? Oh, thank you. I always find it a little odd for me to start with uh, my background because it might be a little bit um, unusual for this kind of uh, for the kind of research that I did. But um, I was born in Mexico City, and I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border on uh, in the city of Nuevo Laredo. And then um, later, um, I moved to Laredo, Texas, which is just across the border. They're sister cities. And um, that's sort of my grow- I grew. And then I, I really grew up um, in on the border area, but my family is from Mexico City. So I travel a great deal to Mexico City to visit family. As to how I became a historian of South Asia, it's a very long story. So I'm not sure um, you want to hear all of it. But um, the short part of it is that I began when I wanted to go to grad school. My idea initially was to do comparative research. I wanted to do comparative research in the social sciences um, between Latin America and South Asia. And I was interested in questions of gender, but I wasn't sure what approach to take. And um, I did a master's in South Asian studies, um, hoping to um, learn languages. I began to learn Hindi and later Urdu. And then my idea is that I was probably going to do something in political science and sort of do comparative work. And then I moved away from that. I really um, moved. I decided that I really enjoyed history as my main field. And I moved away from the idea of comparative work and become became really interested in um, modern South Asian history. I really enjoyed my language classes and um, was really um, realized that that's where I wanted to go. So it was it was a gradual move to South Asian history. And as to a radio project um, that also came came about in a rather unconventional method, um, I began 
by proposing a project about Subhash Chandra Bose specifically and the Indian National Army. And um, when I began looking at sources for that, I became most interested in his radio broadcasts and sound sources. And then I realized that I was most interested in media itself. And then um, I really began to change the trajectory of my research um, and realized that what I found most interesting was radio broadcastings and questions about radio broadcasting. And that section that was the initial uh, project, the initial whole project became a section of the book, of the then dissertation and now the book, a single chapter. But that's sort of how it, nothing was planned. It all sort of developed slowly. And as to the, the focus on, on borders, I think that sort of came very intuitively. Um, I didn't I didn't plan that. It's just the questions I always ask were about um, borders, because I am from a border, right? And it just to me it made sense at the time that there was no other way to approach a study of radio broadcasting that looked at Hindi and Urdu, which were the languages that I was learning, that was not across borders. And it just um, those were the questions that I asked. You know, and because I did that, that was sort of because I had that background, that was sort of the focus that the study took without in a very um, in a, almost in a very organic manner. I didn't I didn't consciously think it like that at the beginning of the study. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, for the field of South Asian history, it's great that you became a historian with this focus. And I feel like your perspective and your background sort of enriches the field. Um, and of course, and it, it's also fascinating to hear about how your own experience growing up along the border sort of contributed to sort of being interested in South Asian history, because like borders are, is, is a big theme in uh, modern South Asia. Um so I think you've already touched upon this a little bit, um, but I'd like to turn uh, to talking about your new book, um, Radio for the Millions. Um, so it's a deeply fascinating cultural history of South Asia that uncovers the role that radio media played in the region's politics and society. Um, so how did you come to write this book and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions? Um, how did I came about to write it? So it began as a dissertation, as I mentioned, and... Um, I, it began, it was done in a history department, but in conversation um, with media studies. And afterwards, I think that it became more and more in conversation with sound studies. As I, and right now I see it as a book that brings together South Asian history, modern South Asian history specifically, and um, sound studies. And um, ask that they should be read um, in conversation. And... Um, I would say that there's a, there's a number of arguments in the book itself, but the main argument of the book is that despite the state governments, both the colonial government and the post, both the colonial government and the independent Indian and Pakistani governments, many attempts to use the radio for their own purposes, the medium was much more successful at contesting that. And um, I show the various ways in which that happened. Um, there's also a very important linguistic argument. Um, most, of, a lot of the scholarship has argued about how Hindi and Urdu become separate languages associated with separate religious communities um, in the years leading to the 1947 partition. And this book shows that if you pay attention and listen instead of only look at written sources, there's a very different story to be told. 
And then um, the book, as I had mentioned, is also very much in conversation with uh, works on sound studies and radio studies specifically. And it makes an argument about um, how we might look at how radio engaged with audiences. And it specifically argues that radio's power was beyond um, those who would listen to it or could tune into it, but that there was also very important the ways in which radio allowed people to talk about radio broadcasting. And it develops the concept of radio resonance, specifically to talk about the ways in which talk, rumor, and um, just uh, conversation allowed radio broadcasts to reach further than actual um, receivers would have. And this is important in an earlier time period when um, radio receivers were not as available, but it also remains important in the age of, in the age of the transistor, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would say that those are the leading arguments um, of the book, and of course, there are some number of sub arguments within the various sections that we can talk about. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, yeah, and we can sort of talk about some of the other sub-arguments as we go through the chapters um, and the sections, and, and which I'll just talk to you about in a moment. Um, but before we go into the, 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 the sections and chapters of the book, I wanted to ask you something that I like to ask all my guests, which is about their research um, for the book. Um, so where did you do your research and what sorts of archives and sources did you access? Yeah. This has been an ongoing project for about a decade. And um, as to research, one of the difficulties that one faces when working with radio archives or radio broadcasting in general is that sources are not easily available. Um, it's hard to gain access to radio stations or um, recordings. Many of the radio stations actually would broadcast live and we wouldn't have access to that. So I really had to do a combination of everything possible. I worked in a number of sort of traditional archives. Um, I did work at the Indian National Archive. I worked uh, at the British Library. I worked at the National Documentation Center in Pakistan. But then I also um, relied greatly on oral history interviews with radio broadcasters and devoted listeners. Um, in throughout India and Pakistan, I traveled a great deal for it. Um, that allowed me to also access their own personal archives, recordings that they had, but also letters that sometimes they kept from radio listeners and diaries that radio listeners shared with me. Um, again, um, it all depends on the chapter. But what I would really say here is that I really took, I really went wherever I possibly could to trace those sources. And it required a, a lot of time and work. But I hope that the book will show the value of that. Absolutely. I mean, as I was reading the book, I sort of felt um, how rich it was and how you had access so many sources from so many different countries. And I think that that sort of really made the like enriched the book and made it such an interesting read uh, for me. Um, so now I'll turn to sequentially asking you about the chapters of the book. Um, so in chapter one, you trace the origins of radio in 1930s colonial India and its role in shaping knowledge about World War II in India, starting with its outbreak in 1939. Um, so could you tell us a little more about this? Yeah, so um, the first section of the book, which is chapters one and two, um, focus specifically on radio news and World War II. And uh, what the argument that the first chapter makes and sort of what became very clear in my sources is that World War II was a breaking moment for radio broadcasting for a variety of reasons, but the most important one, because the British administration was terrified 
that um, anti-colonial leaders would use radio broadcasting for their own means. Um, radio, uh, radio was in very quite restricted in India prior to World mm-hmm. War II. But despite the fact that there were not um, as many that there were not many radio receivers, um, as soon as the war broke, broke out, and even a little earlier, um, when various um, Axis countries began broadcasting in Indian languages, sort of interest exploded, and people really began to tune in to these radio broadcasts. So the chapter talks about the ways in which this was a turning point for ra- um, for radio, and the ways in which um, broadcasts from for the, first from Germany and later from Japan, really um, made people very interested in radio. And the reasons why um, these broadcasts were popular, one of the reasons is that they um, showed uh, solidarity with the, they showed solidarity with the uh, nationalist movement. Of course, that's a very complicated solidarity that's discussed in the book, but it's one that they one that listeners thought that they could get access to that kind of broadcasting that they couldn't get from All India Radio, for example. Thank you. Yeah, that, that that was a very fascinating chapter. It sort of connects with some of my interests about um, the connections between India and Japan. Um, and right. that sort of also connects uh, with um, the next chapter of your book, which covers the very fascinating and complex um, anti-colonial leader, leader Subhash Chandra Bose. Um, so in this chapter, uh, you focus on his radio persona and add new layers to the study of him as a historical figure. Um, so many in our audience may be familiar with Bose, but there are also maybe those who are not familiar with him. So could you tell us more about him and his role as, a, as an anti-colonial radio personality during World War II? Hmm. Um, sure. I mean, I cannot <laughs> say his entire biography in this short thing, but what I can definitely say is that there is a large scholarship on Subhash Chandra Bose. And um, what that scholarship around has often been telling us is uh, about him being an anti-colonial leader with a larger history who during World War II, um, during World War II goes to Germany, receives help from Germany, um, aligns himself with the Axis, later, later with Japan, right? And then uh, fights with the Indian National Army. And what I try to do in this particular chapter is to listen to his radio broadcast in the context of what else is going on in the radio. And what that really reveals is that the narrative of his alliance with uh, with Japan and Germany, which has been always been said as a narrative that says that it was only that there was that the only reason why he aligned was out of only out of self interest, and that there was no ideological ideological reason to align, um, fails to see the ways in which his radio broadcasts were perceived in the larger context of Axis propaganda. Right. And this particular chapter puts it in that larger context of access propaganda and says that he was part of that larger context of access propaganda in Indian languages to in, uh, to India um, during World War Two. And um, the chapter also, sorry, and I should mention that the chapter also puts that, like I said, um, uh, I'm also in conversation with sound studies, right? And one of the things that's very important to remember is that during World War II, for a variety of reasons, but mostly, like I said, for the fear that the anti-colonial movement will use radio as a form of um, loudspeaker for the movement, there were not many radio receivers in India at the time, which meant that not many people could actually tune to Subhashandra mm-hmm. Bose's voice. Um, so it's very easy to dismiss that as unimportant, right? Well, maybe the voice was not longer unimportant, but I show how in reality, um, 
not tuning in did not mean that radio was not important. It just meant that um, there was a certain type of broadcasting that had to be done that encouraged talk about Subhashandra Post, that encouraged people to talk about these radio broadcasts. So that also forces us to see the medium of radio differently. And in the context of radio studies, it becomes a really interesting way to think about how radio connects with audiences. And I try to connect that um, to his larger, to a large, to the afterlife of Subhashandra Bose's following his death, right? And to all the rumors around his death, how those rumors were also connected to um, his radio broadcasts. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, as I was reading the chapter, I could see the importance and significance of your intervention um, in terms of the study of Subhash Chandra Bose. So I found that to be like really fascinating to read. And I also found it very interesting how you were sort of comparing him to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, and I found that to be a very interesting comparison, um, as you were mentioning that, you know, like... Um, Although the number of people listening to the radio might be very low in India, but actually there was like, you know, I, um, his, his sort of broadcasts were not just like the audience was not just limited to those who were listening, but it was sort of spread more further throughout um, India. So I found that to be very fascinating as well. So they can definitely be compared as media personalities, right, that were made and created by the radio. So I think that's the important part. But the the I think that what a study of Subhashandra Bose as a radio personality does, that is somewhat controversial and yet extremely important for me to state directly, is that it simply aligns him a lot closer to the fascist governments that sponsored mm-hmm. him. And I think that that is something that historians have shied away and that it's time that we don't shy away, that it's time that we address directly. And radio sources make that very clear. Thank you. Um, so, um, in, so in the next section of your book, uh, you shift your focus to the post-independence period. Um, and in chapter three, you analyze the role of radio and music in fashioning ideas of Indian culture and conditioning Indian citizenship in the 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, so could you tell us more about this and what you discuss in this chapter? Sure. Um, so the second section of the book um, looks specifically at new, uh, no longer at news, but now at music. And that's also sort of part of the argument. I would say that during World War II, radio was most important as a, as a provider of news. Um, in, news continued to be important in a later time period and in the post-independence period. But right now, uh, what becomes sort of a, a form of controversy and a form of um, discussion is its role as a provider of music, as a medium for music. So in the first chapter, I looked at the role and discussions about about classical music and um, classical music in early post-colonial India and a lot and a reform campaign that takes place in All India Radio by, again, led by many people, but I would say spearheaded right by um, Bibi Keskar, the Information and Broadcasting Minister, and it was a radio campaign, a reform campaign that tried to create new citizens for New India. Through, um, through radio broadcasting and specifically through music. And it was by the promotion of classical music against what he saw as lesser forms of music. And the major lesser form of music was um, Hindi film songs, right? So um, that chapter talks about that campaign and the um, desire to make this particular kind of um, citizen that was based on auditory experience. 
Thank you. Um, so then um, the, the converse to this is the ro unique role of Radio Salon, uh, which you discuss in Chapter 4. Um, so this Radio Salon um, was, a, was a major transmitter of popular songs and film music across borders in South Asia. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about its significance? Like how did a radio station based in Ceylon, that's present-day Sri Lanka, which is a non-Hindi-Urdu linguistic region, become so important in Hindi-Urdu radio broadcasting? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, one of the parts of the book where sort of the story of Radio Ceylon is everywhere. It's impossible to talk to anyone, really, um, over the age of, I would say, 50, and mention the word radio and not hear Radio Salon or Amin Sayani's favorite program, Binaka Gitmala. And yet I, there was so little scholarship and talk about it. But um, the station was based in Salon and now Sri Lanka. And it was based there because it was originally had a very strong transmitter that was used for broadcasting for British soldiers stationed in Asia. And when Salon became independent, a... Um, commercial station was built on that. And one of the places that it broadcast, it was to India and Pakistan. And following Bibi Kesker's campaign, which I outlined in the previous chapter, right, which tried to create Hindi, which tried to create uh, Hindustani classical music and to a lesser extent, Carnatic classical music as the national music and took away Hindi film songs from the, the airwaves, um, Radio Salon took that and began a number of radio programs and very creative radio programs using Hindi film songs. And it sort of just, um, Keskar's campaign opened up a window for them that allowed them to really take advantage of it. And um, it was, I would say, uh, among the, if not the most popular radio station throughout uh, South Asia for at least two decades. And it played an incredibly role, an incredibly important role in making Hindi film songs as popular and as important as we know them now. So the chapter um, talks about the history of the radio station, but also specifically talks about the ways in which it allowed these songs to circulate on the radio and the ways in which various radio stations created particular forms of listening. And I talk about how forms of listening to film in South Asia and forms of listening to film songs throughout South Asia are not um, are, are not natural. They were sort of created and um, explained and taught through these radio programs. And um, the station was as popular in a neighboring Pakistan as mm -hmm. it was in India. So the um, the book also grapples with that. So how is it that in this time period that that um, partition had created a division that it made it impossible for families to cross borders, you still had a very important shared um, soundscape. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, as I mentioned to you before the interview, like you and my mother, for example, was remembering uh, Radio Ceylon. So, I mean, I think the people of a certain generation in India and Pakistan would have fond memories and nostalgia um, about this um, ra radio station. Um, so, um, in chapter five, you focus on Radio Pakistan's radio broadcasting during the 1965 Indo-Pakistan War. Um, so could you tell us a little more about this conflict as well as the significance and consequences of Radio Pakistan's coverage of the war in Pakistan? Sure, um, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, each section um, focuses on a genre and the importance of that genre at that time period. And in each section, I also outline the ways in which... Um, uh, a government 
and state government, whether it was the colonial government or the Indian or later now the Pakistani government, tried to use radio for their own means. And then I show the ways in which um, that was contested um, later on and how that takes place. So in this particular section, I turn to um, radio drama, actually more generally what I call dramatic um, radio. And uh, the chapter five deals specifically with the 1965 war. And the 1965 war is something for which we really... um, had had or and continue to have very little scholarship about. It's often considered um, a very a military conflict that takes place in 1965 between India and Pakistan. It is an important moment because it really is the moment when the border is solidified, when it becomes mm-hmm. very hard for, for the, for the, on the western border to cross back and forth. But um, it's not sort of considered a major military conflict. And what I clearly became very clear to me from my number of um, interviews is that it was a very important media moment. So I was able to access um, recordings from the 1965 war and analyze those recordings and talk about how this war was created and was experienced through radio broadcasts and the role of a number of uh, Radio Pakistan um, actors, singers, Mm -hmm. as well as um, writers throughout Pakistan, famous personalities played during those um, 17 days of war, as it's often referred to. Um, And a very important character in that chapter is the role of Noor Jahan, Mm -hmm. um, the singer, um, the playback singer and actress. And um, her, her important role in performing songs live during the war on the radio, right? And it really does become a radicalizing moment where uh, Pakistan is emerges right as a moment of national pride. And the chapter talks about the ways in which um, radio enabled to, create, to enable enable the creation of that. Thank you. Um, absolutely. I mean, I can see how the significance of this chapter and sort of, you know, um, shining a light on an aspect of post-colonial uh, South Asian history that has been um, um, sort of not as studied, as well studied as it should be. Sorry, a note on sources here that might be interesting. Um, so what I had, what I had been able to talk to a lot of radio broadcasters and interview a number of people in the 1965 war, and I was able to access um, Radio Pakistan's broadcasts for that, I just couldn't find anything that could help me make sense of the military conflict. And I needed Mm -hmm. to read something against that. What I was able, and ironically, I found it at my institution, (laughs) where I did my PhD at UT Austin, has the LBJ library, and LBJ was president during that time period, and I was able to access the State Department sources for that, to just get a sense of the military conflict going on there. So anyways, it was something that my people, people might find interesting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think many historians would would we would sort of be intrigued by how you you sort of I mean it is maybe other historians have also had the experience of discovering sources in unexpected places um so that, that that's a really interesting um yeah. story and maybe others can relate so in chapter six uh, you analyze AIRs uh, that's all India radio's um, Urdu service in the 1960s and 1970s which you mentioned was a counter to uh, Radio Pakistan's successful propaganda. Um, so at a time when the Indo-Pakistan border became solidified, which you just mentioned, um, uh, this AIR Urdu service uh, became a space of contact and dialogue between both sides. Um, so could you tell us more about what you discuss and analyze in this chapter? Sure, absolutely. So um, 
Well, India certainly responded during the 1965 war, and there were broadcasts during the 1965 war. There was a sense among radio broadcasters as well as politicians that when it comes to a media war, um, Radio Pakistan had won in that sense. And uh, there was also a very clear separation that takes place in 1965 with the border solidified. Mm -hmm. So there was a sense in India that there was no way to... um, no way to reach the Pakistani audience to explain events from an Indian perspective. So in response to that, um, Indira Gandhi, when she becomes prime minister in 1966, and actually a little earlier when she was actually information of broad, uh, minister of information and broadcasting, um, she begins what is called the All India Radio Urdu Service. And um, the All India Radio Urdu Service began really as a news program. And it was meant to uh, talk about uh, ceasefire negotiations from an Indian perspective and to broadcast those to Pakistan on the medium wave to ensure that audiences in Pakistan could, could get away from the propaganda that, that they were getting from Radio Pakistan and have a sense of what India has. Broadcasters quickly realized that if they wanted anyone to listen to it, they needed to have some entertainment programs, and they began to add Hindi film songs. Mm-hmm. And then, within less than eight months, it was a nine—it was a nine-hour program going on, going on. And while the initial um, aim of the program was to have um, Urdu understanding—I wouldn't say necessarily speaking, but Urdu understanding audiences in Pakistan. Uh, it quickly gained a lot of popularity among audiences in India. And while that was never what the funding was for, broadcasters took advantage of that. And they designed programs that were meant for listeners on both sides of the divide. And um, what the chapter does is looks at the popularity of these programs, specifically looks at the, at the role of letters, because what the AIR Urdu Broadcasting Program, AIR Urdu Service becomes famous for is for their letter exchange programs that allows for um, listeners in India and listeners in Pakistan to send letters to the radio station. Those letters were read by broadcasters on the airwaves and to um, speak about those letters on the airwaves and to put that as a connection at a time when um, cross-border, uh, what were crossing, physically crossing the border had become all but impossible. And, and the chapter analyzes the role of those letters, the role of those programs, and looks at specifically issues of language and the ways in which it was enabled to build connections at that time period. Thank you. Um, so uh, in the conclusion to the book, you discuss how by the 1980s, radio began to be overshadowed by other media like television and the cassette, bringing an end to the golden age of radio. Um, so could you tell us a little more about this and some of the ways in which paying attention to radio broadcasting changes our understanding of 20th century South Asian history? Okay. I, I don't think I said bringing an, an, an end to the golden age of um, of radio, because I think that I mean I, I think that um, in the age of cassettes and in the age of television, radio is no longer um, at the center in the ways it was um, all the way to the late seventies, very early nineteen eighties that I put forward. But it remains very important. Mm-hmm. So I end the story there because I the the book specifically covers what I would say um, the peak years of Hindi Urdu broadcasting at the time period. Sorry, I forgot the second part of your question. Oh, um, it's about how paying attention to radio broadcasting changes our understanding of 20th century South Asian history. So I think it does so. Yes, absolutely. I think it does so in a number of ways. Um, it, um, one of the ways which it does is 
um, paying attention to periodization and what we consider important. Um, paying attention to radio broadcasting makes us, for example, look at the importance of World War II as a pivotal moment in South Asian mm -hmm. history. Um, it makes us look at Subhash Chandra Bose in a very different perspective if we pay attention to radio broadcasting. And it forces us to hear him the way that people heard him, which was in the context of Axis propaganda to India and what it means to hear his voice in that context. Um, paying attention to radio sources doesn't mean that the 1947 partition did not take place, but it does mean that there were connections post-1947 and that the histories of India and Pakistan need to continue to be read and studied together mm -hmm. um, after that time period, and it forces us to do that. When it comes to a linguistic history, like I said, um, the assumption and the belief is that Hindustani is killed after 1947. Um, this book shows that Hindustani actually thrived on the airwaves, and it might have been one of its strongest moments if we listen to radio broadcasting. As your mom remembers, Radio Salon was crucial to her, the 50s and the 60s, right? So um, that means Radio Salon was a Hindustani broadcasting radio station. So Hindustani remains well and alive in the 50s and 60s. Um, it also forces us to look at the 1965 war. Um, most, I would say that um, to understand what takes place in 1971, we need to see the really importance of 1965 as a moment of building that and the ways in which West Pakistan creates this kind of version of nationalism that completely excludes um, East Pakistan. You can't really understand how that takes place if you don't pay attention to how that takes place in the most important medium of communication at the time period, which was radio, right, in 1965 and the creation of that war. And you can only do that if you actually listen to the broadcasts and talk to the people that heard them. So it forces you to rethink the role of 1965 to do that. So... And then I would say, I mean, at the end of it, it forces you to really think about, the book doesn't argue that partition did not take place. Um, the book argues that there were many ways in which listeners and broadcasters kept on pulling at that and found ways to live with that. And that it's our job to sort of listen to that in the same way that people did at the time period. Thank you. Um, yes, I mean, I see all of that as being like, all of those as being like major contributions of your book, um, this um, sort of shift from just focusing on 1947 and the partition to all seeing the significance of World War II and also seeing um, uh, the continued role, the continuities in terms of, for example, like the role of Hindustani as a, uh, as a sort of a language that sort of continued existing and making connections um, across borders um, in South Asia. And of course, the significance of wars like 1965 and so on and sort of um, uh, influencing how um, history sort of turned out um, in 20th century South Asia. Um, so uh, today I'm speaking to you via podcast, uh, which is a burgeoning audio media. Um, and um, one could say that currently um, in um, audio media could be said to be undergoing a renaissance. So um, as a South, a South Asia studies scholar and as a sound studies scholar, would you like to share any thoughts about this? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I would say it's one of the most exciting moments to really write a history of radio because um, it's for a number of reasons. I have to say it's also an exciting moment to be a historian of media, period. Um, when I first began presenting this research prior to Trump's election. Often in history departments and in history um, conferences, I would be asked, why does it matter? 
I don't think anyone can, why does this matter to political events? Right? I don't think anyone can really ask that anymore. It's sort of, we know we, it's, it's absolutely capable, incapable of asking. But it's a particularly exciting moment to work on, um, on sonic media because of the revival that we're having. And I think it forces us to really think about what it meant in the past. It's not the same then now, but we can certainly feel and know why it's important. I mean, one way in which I tell students about this is um, to study the 20th century without paying attention to radio. It's like trying to think of the, trying to study, trying to have someone write a history of the pandemic and not think of Zoom. And you will be like, where is it? Zoom is crucial to it and not think of Zoom, right? So I think that that's, that's how I would explain why I felt that this was so important. Oh, that's a really interesting comparison that you bring up. And it, it sort of just underlines how interesting and important um, your book was. Um, so, so thank you so much, Isabel, for taking so much time out of your busy schedule to talk with me today. Uh, before we end, may I ask you what you are working on right now and what's next for you? I'm working on a lot of things, but one of the things that I've been uh, very interested in is um, in not only writing about uh, my interlocutors, but writing with them. So um, currently at this very moment, I am working on a interview with one of the listeners that I work with very closely. Um, his name is Hamras, so I'm working on an interview for that we hope to publish together. Um, I'm also applying for a large grant to digitize some of the archives that I had access, uh, that I was fortunate enough to access. So I've been working on that grant um, this year, uh, this particular year. And then finally, I mean, all of this is part of that material, but I, one of the things that I really want to sort of consider more for a second project is more in-depth study of uh, radio drama and radio, and radio narratives that took place in the 70s and the 80s, both in, in, in Hindi and Urdu in India and Pakistan. And I'm specifically thinking more about the role of genre in that. Thank you. That, that sounds really interesting. All of your projects, next projects sound really fascinating. And um, I, I would, I, I look forward to following up your, with your work. Um, and I hope our audience, they read your book, they purchase and read your book, uh, Radio for the Millions. Um, and they also follow up with your work um, in the future. Um, so this was an interview with Professor Isabel Wakuha Alonso about her new book, Radio for the Millions, Hindi-Urdu Broadcasting Across Borders, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2023. So thank you, Isabel. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much.